Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. A new plan announced yesterday by state lawmakers to get California school kids back in classrooms by mid-April is already under fire from Governor Gavin Newsom. KQED's Vanessa Roncano has more. The plan makes more than $12 billion in state and federal funds available to help with reopening and make up for lost learning. To get it, schools would have to start reopening by April 15th, beginning with their most vulnerable students. The legislation would also require county public health departments to make COVID-19 vaccines available to on-site teachers and staff. Assemblyman Phil Ting. Parents like myself have been watching their kids on Zoom for the last year, and the learning loss is absolutely staggering. Uh, So we believe that this is the right plan to encourage the most schools to open up. The leaders of some of the state's biggest school districts applauded lawmakers for recognizing the role of vaccines in allowing for safe reopening. The state teachers union also welcomed the emphasis on vaccination. But some are already raising concerns that the money won't be enough to pay for all the safety requirements, like testing. Kevin Gordon is a lobbyist who represents school districts around the state. It's not much of an incentive if the funds basically get exhausted on testing alone. Lawmakers said they plan to take up the bill as soon as Monday. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. Meanwhile, the city of Long Beach is one of several California cities making its own timeline for reopening schools. Long Beach Unified now says they expect in-person learning will begin for elementary school kids on March 29th. Back in December, the district had hoped to open schools by the beginning of next month. Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia says teachers and staff will have the opportunity to get both doses of the COVID-19 vaccine before returning. If we're going to um, expect uh, teachers to be back in the classroom and feel safe and expect their families to feel safe uh, and and for parents to feel safe sending their kids into a classroom, I strongly believe uh, that uh, teachers and staff at schools should be vaccinated. School officials are hoping to get older students back in the classroom by mid-April if they move to a less restrictive tier. Thousands of people across the state who were expecting to get their COVID-19 vaccine shots today have had their appointments rescheduled because of a shortage of doses. Severe weather across the country has delayed shipments of both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Here's L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. We learned that two shipments of Moderna vaccines were expected to arrive in L.A. this week were delayed due to the severe weather that's making planes unable to fly with those badly needed doses here in Los Angeles. As a result, about 12,500 patients with appointments for vaccinations at our large vaccination sites 
have had their appointments rescheduled automatically. The delay has also forced the closure of the vaccination site at Disneyland in Orange County. It's a mixed bag across the rest of the state. In the Central Valley, thousands of doses haven't arrived. In the Bay Area, Napa and San Mateo counties are seeing major shortages, while others like San Francisco aren't expecting problems for now, but they say that could change by next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. A new book released this week explores the life of comic book legend Stan Lee, the man many know as the creator of the Marvel Universe. You know the characters, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, and the Hulk. Lee had a lasting impact on Hollywood. The author of True Believer is Abraham Reisman. He joins me now. Good morning. Uh, It's really great to be here. I'm very excited about it. Well, Abe, I'm interviewing you because... I have folded a lot of Spider-Man underwear over the last few years, and <laughs> I have a young boy in my home. Uh, he's mine. When And when Stanley died a couple years ago, we actually talked about it on this show, on the California Report, but I did not admittedly know who he was. You obviously mm-hmm. did. Um, so I want to know from you, what got you so interested in him? I knew about Stanley going back to childhood. I'd been a follower of the Marvel Universe, first in cartoon form and then in comics. And, uh, you know, once I started writing about the comic book industry uh, for New York Magazine and Vulture, it eventually sort of seemed like uh, uh, it was a natural fit that I would investigate and write more about Stan Lee. And what I found when I began my research was there was a lot that I didn't know and that nobody knew. And that was something that always sort of spurs a reporter to get interested in a topic. I think the central question that so many people have, and certainly the one that you are trying to answer in the book, is did he or didn't he invent the characters that he purports to have invented? What do you think the answer is to that question? I think the answer, unfortunately, is we don't know. And from all I can tell, we'll probably never know. Um, One of the messages of the book is that you have to, just as a person in the world, live with the fact that there is ambiguity. And that, in fact, ambiguity is more often the honest answer than some kind of certainty. It was such a fly-by-night industry that no one was really documenting any of this. You know, there are not surviving recordings of story sessions where people are discussing what's going to be in the comic, much less discussing what the characters are going to be in the initial creation stages. There's no presentation boards. There's no, you know, diary entries. And so that leaves us with, again, this terrifying but... Uh, honest answer, which is we have to live with the ambiguity, probably forever. But what we do know about him is that he was a tremendous marketer. And you've written about why he's had such a lasting impact on Hollywood. I mean, to you, how important was he to creating the idea of this, you know, a shared universe of characters? So 
Stan was the editor-in-chief uh, of the Marvel Comics line in the 60s and had been for a number of decades prior to that. But in the 60s, he was overseeing the superhero titles that were getting invented um, and that he was co-writing. And at some point along the line, decided to start having them cross over with each other in a way that was sort of story consistent. You know, there was continuity. And mm-hmm. in order to follow the continuity, you had to read basically all of the Marvel comics because, you know, what the X-Men did in one issue could affect what happens to Daredevil in another issue of, of Daredevil's series. And, you know, there will be references in the Fantastic Four to things that happened in Spider-Man. You know, it's a genius move for, uh, from a business perspective. From an artistic perspective as well, it created mm-hmm. this story that has continued um, uninterrupted since then in, you know, shifting forms, but it's all the same continuity. And that iterative mode of storytelling can be really powerful. One of the things about your book is, you know, it is truly in some ways a California story. He makes it big in Hollywood. He tries to do the Silicon Valley thing during the dot-com bubble. That did not Mm -hmm. go so well for him. How did that even happen? Yeah, so uh, Stan, as of 1998, was still at Marvel um, in pretty much just a ceremonial and spokesperson role. He, he, he was trying to get creative work back on the, you know, off the ground and put himself back on the map, and it was not going well. Marvel wasn't that interested. The creatives thought the ideas weren't that great. It was a rough situation. And then uh, also uh, Marvel had gone into Chapter 11 bankruptcy because the comics industry had cratered and there was some bad management. And during the bankruptcy proceedings, uh, Stan's contract was up in the air. And he uh, panicked a little bit. He didn't know uh, what his future was going to look like. And he turned to uh, a man named Peter Paul, who he'd known since 1989, and who had uh, you know, a complicated, fascinating past. He was a thrice-convicted felon, but who nevertheless walked in a lot of the elite halls of, of power for both Hollywood and, um, and you know, the political establishment. And uh, Peter had this idea, which was, why don't we create sort of a Stan Lee company? The basic idea was they would make these animated webisodes uh, using Macromedia Flash, which was very cutting-edge technology back then. They were going to create this huge new presence in the, in the entertainment world. And um, it didn't go that way. Very complicated story, short. Uh, it turns out that the company was built completely on fraud. You know, it turned out that this company, Stanley Media, which was doing well on paper, but also not putting out products that anyone was really liking or engaging with, Stanley included, um, it turns out that this company was just built on stock manipulation. There, there was a lot, a menu of uh, illegal financial activities going on with it. The book is called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee by author Abraham Reisman. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Lily. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever Spider-Man can. the web any time. Can't you see? That's a rock. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches feet just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Turning to politics, California Republicans will gather for a virtual convention this weekend amidst the party's effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. KQED's Katie Orr reports. 
The convention comes as the party gains a little bit of traction in the state, where its members have largely been relegated to bit player status in recent years. But Republican political consultant Rob Stutzman says the state GOP is coming off a strong election year where it outperformed expectations. And he says there's enthusiasm about the possible recall. The effort against Newsom makes sense for the party. It's something to build around. There's probably voter support for the recall beyond just the Republican Party. It gives an opportunity for Republicans to talk about how they would govern the state differently. Still, Stutzman acknowledges the GOP faces a steep climb in the state, and he notes the party may have lost voters after the January insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Senator Alex Padilla and other California members of Congress introduced a major immigration bill on Thursday. As KQED's Tyke Hendricks reports, the Biden-backed bill would offer a path to citizenship to the country's unauthorized immigrants, including more than two million here in California. Passing the bill could be tough with a closely divided Senate. But after two decades of failed attempts to overhaul immigration, South Bay Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren says current laws no longer serve the U.S. economy or a just society. We are dependent on farm workers who are out there in the field risking the uh, contagion of COVID, and a majority of them are undocumented. How does it serve the United States to not allow people who are serving our needs to get right with the law? It doesn't. The bill is set to be introduced in the Senate next week. For the California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. We're getting a new glimpse at evidence reviewed by a Butte County grand jury, which last year brought 84 manslaughter charges against PG&E and another count of causing the 2018 campfire. Journalist Brandon Riddeman from ABC10 in Sacramento reviewed an internal report from PG&E's own materials lab. He says it shows PG&E knew old parts like the one that caused the campfire needed replacing. And that this was an issue that could be plaguing their system all over Northern California. Including on lines here in the Bay Area, Brandon found PG&E tried to show those old parts could last longer. His investigation is called Firepower Money, and I've tweeted it out. I am at Lily Jamali. Today marks a day of remembrance, the anniversary of President Roosevelt's executive order that led to the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. This week on our sister show, The California Report magazine, host Sasha Koka brings us the voices of Japanese Americans from the Central Valley who participated in a StoryCorps project to share memories across generations. Yutaka Yamamoto was in fourth grade in Fresno when Japanese troops bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, The thing I remember most was that from December 7th on, every day the teacher that I had, she would turn the radio on. The National Broadcasting Company brings you the latest news from the Far Eastern War Zone. The news naturally was about the war and the Japanese. They use a nickname, Jap. It's very painful to hear people call you a Jap. And I told my teacher, who was a Caucasian, I won't be coming to school from tomorrow. And her only reply was, oh, no, no goodbyes or nothing. In another StoryCorps interview, Fresno County peach farmer and author Moss Masamoto talks with his wife Marcy, who's white, about how the legacy of internment shaped their marriage. Growing up, 
my parents called that time they were in camp. And it was their euphemism for saying they were in prison, thrown in prison in the Arizona desert behind barbed wire for four to five years. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you first heard that story and what you felt? I, I remember you telling me that story, and I could not believe it. I, I admit I knew nothing about Japanese-American um, internment or incarceration um, until you told me about that. Here we were in graduate school before I ever uh, heard about that. And um, I don't think my folks, my dad in particular, saw the wrong in that at all. Right. Here's the wild thing, Mars, that I think your understanding of that story, that legacy, part of our family history and part of me, was when you could grasp that, understand it, it was love. Oh, well, of course. (laughs) Their daughter, Nikiko Masumoto, co-founded the Yonsei Memory Project to help collect these conversations while elders who lived through the war are still alive. There's nothing like the moment now to ask a question and listen. It's a beautiful experience. For the California Report, I'm Sasha Koka. You can hear more of these StoryCorps conversations on this week's California Report magazine. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, offering professional-grade financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary, personalcapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And that is the California Report for this Friday, February 19th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin, Danny Bringer, and Jim Bennett, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Holly J. McDeed, and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Have a great weekend, everyone. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.